Welcome to Transitional Justice in America, a podcast from the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. The coalition is a global network of over 350 historic sites, museums, and memory initiatives in more than 65 countries, all dedicated to using past struggles to address social injustice today. I'm your host, Harisha Naidu. I'm a program coordinator with the coalition's Global Transitional Justice Initiative. If you've listened to the first five episodes of this podcast, you've heard US-based transitional justice practitioners dialogue with Sites of Conscience members in Colombia, the Gambia, South Africa, and Sri Lanka. Each of these conversations focus on a different aspect of this work and the unique challenges they face in their communities and countries. Common themes also emerged from these conversations, and it's these ideas that we'll be discussing in this final episode. I'm joined by Angie Williams, who you may remember from episode one. Angie is the former communications associate here at the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience and currently serves as marketing communications administrator for the undergraduate drama department at New York University's Tisch School of Arts. Angie and I sat down to reflect on everything that has been said and shared so far in the podcast and draw out some of the lessons we can all learn from the vital transitional justice work being done around the world. Over the next hour, you'll hear our conversation interspersed with the key quotes from our guests on earlier episodes. If you don't hear what people have been through, if you don't know, your vision becomes myopic. So this is about broadening the ability to listen to people and know what everybody went through in depending on their ethno-political, social situation, their experiences would be different. But as a collection, this enables policymakers, it enables us as citizens to think about how and what kind of peace we should actually create after conflict. I also bring into the work experience about what apartheid has done. The segregation by color, I grew up with that. My earliest memory of the violence that was perpetrated by people that we lived in, in society. So a seed in me was planted to say, such injustice you cannot just stand by and not fight it. And I think that's what inspired my activism. So, Angie, the first thing I want to talk about is what it means to be an activist, which is something all of our guests touched on in one way or another. I think that activism looks different for many different people. I think it has, it takes on many different forms and takes on many different definitions. One thing that really stood out to me is activism in the form of truth-telling. Absolutely. And, And I think that listening to the conversations between our colleagues, something that came out for me was how there are so many different forms of activism that can happen. Um, so you mentioned truth telling and knowing that there is space for those different forms of activism really does mean that there's space for different people and everyone to have a stake in it, right? So that activism doesn't need to look like one mode of engagement, or you don't have to be a certain person or know people 
to be able to engage in a form of activism. That was that was something that came out for me from the discussion. I think one of the reasons why truth telling is so important is because we kind of see with um, different marginalized groups uh, throughout society that a lot of histories aren't being told. And so truth telling, when we're able to actually hold people accountable for the things that they've done, I think that's when people may begin to heal. Yeah. And, and part of that, you know, part of that means that in order to heal, we need to know our past. And so truth telling comes in that sense. But in order to be able to start envisioning what a just world looks like, we have to name the injustices and we have to be able to know what collective action then looks like in relation to building that. Activism is actually just very much the starting point to then discussing advocacy, to discussing accountability, to discussing reparations. But so entering our activism by starting off with truth-telling is probably a really important avenue to get more people involved when we think about collective action. It's about using the power of our collective voice and to just make sure that our histories, legacies, and memories are never forgotten. And as you kind of mentioned, Purusha, we could kind of use this as a springboard to really just influence a future generation of of activists and people that really just want to make a difference. And I this is somewhat linked to that, you know, discussions around future generations. As a young South African who grew up in post-apartheid South Africa, I listened to someone like Lebo. I listened to someone like Irishni, who are both, you know, citizens of my country um, and are really inspiring in terms of how, you know, this is not just a job for them. They may work for organizations dealing with issues related to transitional justice and human rights. But across everyone that we've been able to engage with through the podcast series, there's really an understanding that this is not just simply a job. It is a lifelong commitment to keep going, even when the people in power don't want to listen. What does it mean to harness that across generations so that it doesn't just end with Irishni and Lebo, but continues with other young South Africans like myself? Um, and I think that is something we can think about across country contexts and across generations. If I could look at what activism looks like in my community, I kind of think of, you know, small nonprofit organizations. I think of teachers who, you know, kind of may stray away from the curriculum um, to try to teach kids about some of the things that aren't included in our history books. So for me, that's what activism also could look like. Yeah, that's that is, you know, totally speaking to, for lack of a better word, the the flattening of this idea of what it means to be an activist, to understand that it is in your everyday actions and not necessarily in that one placard that you hold at the one rally you go to. And and I guess, you know, the challenge for each of us is to always question our activism and why we are being activists and for what cause. And if we're strayed from the cause, why? I think another thing that's really interesting um, that my colleague Jamira actually touched on, she mentioned that transitional justice should not fall on the shoulders of the oppressed. And so just kind of expanding on that, I think that maybe within our community is one of the reasons why activism may seem intimidating or it may seem like it might not lead to anything is because this work is falling on the shoulders of the oppressed. And so I think 
one way that we can really look at what we're doing and what we're standing for is figuring out, you know, who we can call on to help us, who we can call on to also shoulder this burden. So we're not taking on all this work by ourselves. If we are doing this work and kind of doing it in a silo, ultimately, you know, what change comes from that? He had this idea to bring some of the FARC's combatants and propose them to write about their experiences, but not their experiences related with their conflict, but their experiences with something that we as a humanity share. At our Truth Commission, we had hearings which were broadcasted on TV and radios. So we knew that for many women, the, the, the thought of anybody finding out they had experienced sexual violence will stop them from coming to the TRRC. So one of the methods that we used, we had listening circles where we organized a safe space where only women were allowed to come and sit down and talk about their experiences. And we didn't limit this just to the experiences of human rights violations during Jamez time. This uh, safe space was provided for women to talk about what it felt like to be a woman. In our case, this space that we're trying to create is a literal physical space where a particular sort of set of events, you know, happened, but is recognized because it was a cemetery or a burial ground as also a place of contemplation, sort of honoring. And, and therefore, I think people do tend to be drawn to spaces like that as a space where you, you sort of quiet down and then can engage in serious conversations. So on that note, I, I think that's a really helpful segue to discuss the importance of creating safe spaces. For you, Angie, what is a safe space? I think about a safe space as a holistic environment that is free of denialism, violence, and discrimination. In order to do this work, in order to, you know, heal from, you know, some of these atrocities, if a safe space is not provided, then people won't feel comfortable actually engaging. I think a safe space, what that means to me is just be, being able to be in an environment where we can tell the truth, where we can bridge differences, where we can engage in open dialogue, where we don't necessarily feel like we have to hide any part of our identities. Yes. And, and I think both Fatu, Adriana, and Anna have highlighted how we can convene safe spaces with different objectives in a sense that you know, for Fatu, the, the connection was how do we create a safe space for women who may or may have not experienced certain violations, but we're convening it with the idea that this is for women. And in Adriana's sort of discussion, she spoke to how it's about creating an understanding of shared humanity. I think that both of those examples speak to how safe spaces can look different for everyone. And sometimes it's the most simpler thing that we have to do, right? There's, there's no sort of big agenda to creating a safe space. It's just simply we're convening people together. And perhaps these are some of the ground rules to make sure everyone's comfortable. But it doesn't have to be um, sort of this abstract, far away, impossible thing to do. Uh, Anna, she actually touched on losing space. Um, and so if I can actually think about 
safe spaces in the context of the African-American community, a lot of our spaces were taken from us. And sometimes you really do need that literal physical space in order to engage in healing, dialogue, to bridge differences. And I really do believe that's where a lot of the action starts, looking at what safe spaces mean to me and, you know, the environments where I felt that I was able to actually work towards change. Those were environments where, you know, I could have conversations with someone who, you know, might have experienced something different than me, or I could have conversations with um, leaders in my community and ask those questions and understand the policies that are affecting us in our neighborhood. And so sometimes we really do need that physical space just to convene together. You know, in, in light of Anna's work with Sacred Ground, there's this added layer of contemplation and honoring that she said um, that can take place when you create a safe space. And I, I think that that echoes your own you know, discussion about when safe spaces are taken away and completely removed, because essentially that means you're breaking up a social fabric of a community. And so perhaps those safe spaces then become just one avenue to rebuild a social fabric. And, you know, maybe it's not about talking about the issue or the injustice at hand, but seeing ourselves reflected back in other people, which is not an opportunity that's given to you when you face injustices, because so much of that is this dehumanizing process that happens. And so safe spaces then can just become one of the avenues to connect back with other people that you otherwise have been denied from. Society has a tendency to rewrite history. And so when we're able to take these spaces back, we're able to reclaim parts of our, our culture, parts of our memories that we didn't have access to. Harusha, as you mentioned, we're also, we have access to people that we wouldn't have necessarily had access to before. Whether, whether that may be even having those conversations with those perpetrators or people that have hurt you. I think that reclaiming those spaces and reclaiming that power is really important. Hmm. Yeah, and, and in listening to the various discussions around reclaiming, something that came up for me was a central objective of transitional justice. Uh, so sort of TJ 101 is guarantees of non-recurrence. And so in other words, what must we do in the present so that violations and injustices of the past do not continue in the future. So there's this sort of backward, present, forward-looking lens that you have to take when we discuss reclaiming, um, reclaiming to, to what ends and through what means. But I also think that part of that means, you know, disrupting cycles of misremembering and erasing history or rewriting history, because that essentially allows for certain narratives, certain experiences to be invisibilized. And so I think of the work of, of many of our colleagues as really being this active movement to, to remembering and making things visible from the past. As we've already mentioned, these issues are global and they aren't going anywhere if we don't stop and tell the truth. There's a wonderful quote by Polly Murray, if we want to heal, we must tell the truth. Maybe the change of the narrative, it has to be with giving us the opportunity to expand the voice of the people that participate in this society. And I think that is very important for us that we acknowledge that as society, we need to hear all the voices 
I think of our own Black Women's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which, you know, for us was civil society led. It was not supported by the government. And we had to take matters into our own hands and we had to ourselves, right, tell the stories. And, you know, this this whole idea of being able to organize around the issue of stories and storytelling and archiving. So actually, Perusha, that really reminds me of the power of storytelling as well. I think storytelling, you know, definitely serves as a vehicle for um, combating denialism. So reclaiming our spaces also means just simply reclaiming our stories and and really telling those stories and figuring out ways to archive our stories, figuring out ways to, you know, present our stories to different people so that they understand a lot of the things that different people have been through, different marginalized groups have been through, so that there is not that opportunity to rewrite history. And and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, Angie, just in a sense that, you know, we live in countries and in a world that is divided, where there are often competing narratives. And sometimes the narrative one person has of me actually strips me from my humanity. So I'd just like to hear your thoughts, perhaps, on like, you know, what does it mean to balance those narratives when certain narratives actually should not be acceptable in society? but they're there. I guess within the context of the African-American community, I kind of think about um, the different narratives that I feel are used sometimes against our community versus what I believe our, our narrative sometimes actually is. And I can't speak for the entire African-American community and their narrative, you know, our narrative as a whole, but, you know, just really thinking about our, our culture and our heritage I don't believe that a lot of our narratives are accurately told. And so that's a really complex question for me specifically, just because I would love to see our community be able to control the narrative. And I think that as long as people in positions of power, you know, are the ones controlling the narrative or they're the ones that are deciding who gets to tell what story or what history gets to um, be told, what gets to be printed in a history book then I don't think that there's room for, you know, both narratives. I don't think that there's room for those competing narratives because we're not understanding each other and we're not we're not really amplifying the voices that need to be amplified. Yes, and I, I think to go further that they are the people in power that need to be, you know, held accountable. But it is also a question of those that have benefited from oppression. You know, how how do they need to start being engaged and how do they need to start engaging uh, so that they can take ownership and understand their role within systems of oppression? That, you know, these are not just systems that are, you know, placed down on earth, like they're man-made. We're all operating within them to some extent, both consciously and unconsciously. And if you are a beneficiary of injustice, you do have a role to play. Thinking back to what Jamira spoke about, just thinking about privilege, uh, I think this is where we can kind of emphasize the importance of allies or accomplices. We can't do the work ourselves. Um, These communities can't do the work themselves. We need people in positions of power to actually step in and try to challenge these systems. And I think that this ties into healing, uh, reclaiming spaces, 
you know, as I mentioned before, when you're kind of when you're doing this work in a silo, nothing really is accomplished. Uh, we need people that are actually going to um, take their own definitions of activism and actually try to make changes. So I don't necessarily, even though we can challenge privilege, I don't necessarily think that, you know, there is no place for people that have privilege in these spaces. I think that they can actually do a lot of justice within our communities. I think they could lot they could do a lot of within the realm of transitional justice. I think that, you know, they have a space and it's really important what they do with that space. Yeah. And perhaps it's recognizing the privilege and power you have and knowing how to use it, but also knowing when to take a step back and be quiet. Um, I think that there's a delicate balance in that. And I've often heard the refrain, oh, well, I'm not sure what to do. But I think the very fact that you don't have to be sure of what to do is a privilege, right? Like that you don't have to think about what it means to need to figure out ways of surviving and having your humanity recognized. And that's a that's a cause for pause. It's a cause for pause to think very clearly about, well, if I've never had to think about this, then I need to start and I need to start placing actions forward to knowing more clearly about what my role can look like. And I think this actually ties into correcting the narrative uh, when we're able to really address these issues, these atrocities and things like that, when we're really able to address the true nature of these things. I think that's when people become informed. When we're able to learn about our histories, we're able to then take these issues to policymakers, to people that can actually make change. These spaces are important. And that's why, ultimately, why it's so important and contributes to safe spaces and contributes to change actually being done. Yeah, when I think about the benefits of social media to transitional justice, I think about the the pillar of accountability, right? And putting pressure on to hold those accountable. When we begin the process for collecting stories and working with particularly the LGBTI community, we needed to have built a space and a movement that not only begins to provide a safe space for the community to feel free to tell their stories, but we needed to look at approaches to using the technology itself. And we realized that we needed to have a feminist approach to digital storytelling. I think that's actually a good segue to discussing technology. Just thinking about what it means for people to be informed. You know, technology is a really big part of that. Technology is, you know, most people are able to access some form of technology. That means you're able to access them in some way as well. What are your thoughts on on technology? We touched on that a lot in previous conversations about transitional justice. And I think that technology plays a huge role in creating a platform for collective knowledge to be shared, for for people to learn about global issues. And so I, I think that technology kind of helps us create global movements. It helps us learn things that we wouldn't have learned otherwise. Um, they can help create safe spaces. And, and, you know, that's really important. Safe spaces can exist online. And then even speaking literally um, about social media 
and, and you know, how that is, is sometimes used as a springboard for activism, how we're learning about survivors and their stories through social media, you know, um, through Instagram um, campaigns. We're learning about things that are happening in, in Sri Lanka. We're learning about things that are happening in Ghana. We're just we have access to all this different information using technology. So I, I believe it definitely holds a very important space in the realm of transitional justice. I think it also adds a dimension of sort of democratizing transitional justice. In some ways, you know, knowing that it's not something that only happens behind closed doors at a truth commission or something that happens behind closed doors in a courtroom. I I wonder what the South African experience of the truth commission would have looked like if we had something like Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. And, And we see examples of how technology is used in different transitional justice contexts, but thinking about what's the most appropriate means, right? So perhaps in one setting, radio is the most most used form of technology. And in another space, it's actually more something like a social media platform like Instagram and Facebook. And But I, I think at the core of it is, you know, how are we getting information to people so that they can be informed, but also so that they can use that information to in, towards an end. And not just, you know, consuming the information and then not moving forward with it. When we look at social media, people have access to policymakers. They have access to people that can actually make change. And so I think that that is just being able to connect to one another and really hold people accountable, I think, is an area where we see technology really be used as a powerful tool for change. I recognize social media technology as as a tool for not only documenting, but also just sparking change. And I I think that it would be impossible to not speak of lots of things happening in the social media world regarding ownership and who owns these big companies. And, you know, in the time of increasing surveillance with governments. And so that is obviously a layer to the context of using technology that is always going to be there. But I I wonder if it's also about how we create cultures of using technology towards justice. You know, it's not simply just, oh, okay, there's certain people in power, there's certain algorithms, you know, it's a it's a bit of a black box that the average person, well, I think of myself as the average person, may not understand. So while we may not understand all the ins and outs of how technology comes to be, you know, there is room, I think, within our activism, within, as we've been discussing, reclaiming spaces, that we can build a culture of using technology to share information in a way that's productive and that gets people off the couch and, and into the streets. Yeah, I think it's also important to also recognize that technology is it's, it's very dynamic. There's a lot that you can do, um, as we've seen with digital mapping. That's a form of activism. That's a form of using um, technology to recognize um, atrocities as they, they've happened in our communities. And it could be a, a Facebook group, a WhatsApp group of being able to talk about, you know, what's, what's happening in your neighborhood. It, it can be something, something as simple as a podcast. And I think that part of creating this culture where we're using technology you know, to springboard activism is looking at what different communities, what different groups need. And this kind of ties into activism as a whole. There's different ways that we can use it to 
make the change that we want to see. And no matter how big or how small. For me, TJ means looking back to undo the wrongs that exist within societies that contribute to inequality and the abuse of power. And TJ for me, again, is a, a method to advance. It can be a vehicle that can be used to advance the rights of women, especially, but also to promote and protect women's rights. When you think about transitional justice, it can happen in little pockets and little towns that have undergone atrocities. And maybe a committee from that little town or a local government will take on a project such as the Greensboro Truth Commission, for example. The way I think about transitional justice is the idea of how are we creating systems, places, and policies that enables for people to seek and receive justice that is transformative in their lives and not just what the, the systems deem as, as justice. So we have defined transitional justice in our notes here for this conversation. And I'm glad we agreed to save this for later in our discussion because it could really easily take up an entire episode. So for me, um, it's more about asking the question than answering it definitively. I, I think that, you know, you could ask any, any person that identifies as being a practitioner or a scholar or anything within the transitional justice field. And I think you will always get 2,000 different answers about what TJ is. And it was really interesting listening to our colleagues share their definitions of it. I think at the core, it is a movement towards a better future. But I, I think we sometimes get stuck on the movement part. I think that when you see formal transitional justice processes happening, there's sort of one thing that happens and then there's no further movement on that. There's a truth commission, there's a policy, and things kind of just get stagnant after a while. So I think throughout the conversations, we saw examples of how there really is a need to keep going. Even when you think that, you know, something has been addressed, it probably hasn't been addressed fully. There may have been a truth commission, but so for for me, taking away the definition is really a call to keep going um, and a call to to keep questioning if things have been done in the way that it should have been done. And if there's still an injustice happening, clearly not. I really like what you said about, um, you know, not so much as is focusing on the definition, but kind of, you know, just looking at it from the sense of there's work to do. And I think that one thing that we need to recognize about transitional justice is that the definition is not going to look the same for everyone. And that's very important. And I think that especially for, you know, new generations of, of activists doing away with these definitions and focusing on what does it look like for communities to kind of experience this transformative process that helps them heal from a lot of these injustices that are happening. Um, I think it's important to kind of look at it in the context of different groups within our, our, our communities. Yeah, I really like that point on how communities themselves essentially can can decide to how they want to define it. And, you know, so much of that is a lot of the work around 
grassroots movements to transitional justice and how in many countries, including the US, there are no formal processes in place, but that doesn't mean that justice cannot happen if a community themselves is deciding to set up a commission or reparations program. In some ways, I think, you know, we sometimes cannot wait for a formal process to take place because too much damage has already been done and the damage will continue unless ourselves as communities don't intervene and don't have solutions to it. Yeah. Um, And actually looking at transitional justice, even though there are no um, formal practices being put in place, we see it every day in our communities. We see we see it with the way that knowledge is being shared um, um, between generations. We see it with safe spaces. We see it with um, organizations that are, are operating at the ground or on the ground level. I think specifically with transitional justice, kind of touching on what you were speaking to, Purusha, I believe that the oppressed or the community or whatever group, I think that they need to really inform what these processes will look like. And as you mentioned, doing away with that top-down approach, we don't want people in positions of power to tell us what this looks like. For instance, you know, looking at reparations. If reparations given to the African-American community aren't what we really need, then it just be kind of comes a band-aid where we're just kind of doing things for show. I yeah, I think that, you know, it's a it's like a checkbox. Like, okay, done reparations i actually wanted to go back to a point from earlier about you know sort of sharing information across generations but i i'm i'm sure that you've also spoken about the intergenerational element to it and what does that mean in communities that have faced centuries of injustice and oppression so something that lebo spoke to was you know how the the process of reckoning is not meant to have a timeline and That is a pertinent point because oppression that has occurred over a long period cannot be dismantled in one truth commission or one reparations program. And this is sometimes hard for us to understand because it's it's requiring us to take like a hundred year view, a multi-generational view of how we can begin to practice um, something like transitional justice and how we can then begin to see the fruits of a transitional justice process. So in some ways, I'm going to say it's like this blind trust, right? This blind trust that what we're doing now is meant to feed into other generations. It's meant to ensure that these violations do not take place again. But at the same time, the field of transitional justice, like many fields related, like development, peace building, human rights, these are ever-growing and emerging fields that are coming to recognize certain things. Discussions about economic crimes are now more relevant to the TJ field. So people within it may have been discussing this, that it's linked to to reparations, but it's now finally at the forefront of the kind of work that gets to happen. Even, you know, discussions about how to approach sexual and gender-based violence. And so really my point is that there's a field made up of people doing the work and sometimes things go missing. Sometimes things that are important don't get the same sort of um, uh, recognition or the same sort of funding or the same sort of capacity that it needs to. But that also means we risk losing or we risk involving whole communities of victims because they don't fit certain views of that. 
So it really is then up to those communities across generations to, to advocate, but also to ensure that people in the field of transitional justice are always aware of who's not at the table, who's missing, who have we not considered in this process. So sort of two separate points, but I, I do think that they, they are related in some ways. Yeah. Actually looking at different groups within groups, um, speaking about the LGBTQ community or speaking about the differently abled community, I think that going back to privilege, this is why it's important that within these processes, it's really important that we recognize the privilege that we have within our own communities. It's really important to, as we mentioned before, create those safe spaces and bridge those gaps and and really explore one another's humanity um, so we can uplift the voices um, that are the most marginalized. If I can speak back to technology, specifically looking at technology and how it influences young people, this is how we are creating the change. This is how we are communicating between generations because young people now more than ever are understanding what's going on in their communities and they're able to fill in those gaps sometimes. And the work is not all on them because we're all doing the work across all generations, but they're able to really fill those gaps and um, jumpstart these movements and recognize the voices that need more uplifting uh, within our communities. As someone who was at university during a sort of the roads must fall movement and fees must fall in South Africa, a lot of uh, those discussions centered on how women and people of the LGBTQI community were marginalized in South Africa's struggle for independence and struggle from apartheid and how our generation was very much like the revolution won't happen unless it's intersectional, unless we are bringing everyone to the table. So I think there's a sort of generational dialogue that ends up happening or sometimes debate that ends up happening about who has been left out previously and why, and those biases, but also how we, as groups that have experienced oppression and injustices, can also be the very ones doing that to other people in the policies that we advocate for, in how we choose to only recognize the pain of a few, or in how we may speak of oppression, but in very narrow terms. So really widening our lens of transitional justice, but also our activism to understanding that the oppression that we experience is part of this wider system that oppresses many other people on the basis of many other reasons. I'm going to reiterate, this is why, you know, storytelling is so powerful, because history does have a tendency to be rewritten. And you are, you're right, Purusha. Injustice is, is very multidimensional. I think that Within our communities, there's there's different levels. And even if I can speak specifically to the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, one thing I've seen people my generation and, and younger, um, I see people saying that all Black lives matter. And so that includes Black trans lives, that includes differently abled people. I think one thing that is really important to acknowledge is the fact that transitional justice um, has many different definitions. And it's important for our communities to inform what these these processes look like. Um, it's important for us to have a voice in the change that we want to see 
it's important for us to inform change makers about the change we want to see. It's important for us to have a say in our community. Knowing that oppression has occurred over centuries means that the work has to start now. We can no longer wait. Part of that also means taking the 100-year view, but also creating very clear milestones to know that we are on the road towards justice and to know that we have to keep holding people accountable and keep pushing to create that world. It's not an easy one, but I do believe it's possible when I listen to the inspiring voices of all of our colleagues and the work that they're doing. And I challenge everyone to think about what they need to do to contribute to that, because I don't think we can afford to just sit back and not have anything to say about the world that we're living in and not have any any drive towards creating some kind of change. I don't think it's fair on the very communities that have been bearing the brunt of injustices. And I don't think it's fair for future generations. But knowing that you can do something is definitely a starting point. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to our our first point. What does activism look like for you? You know, what is what what definition does activism take in our, our communities? So it's it's important to reiterate that we all can contribute to this work. Thank you, Angie. I think that's a great place to end our conversation. Thank you for listening to Transitional Justice in America, a podcast from the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. This episode was a conversation between Angie Williams and me. I've been your host, Parusha Naidu. The clips from previous guests were taken directly from episodes 1 through 5, so if you haven't already listened to those, I'd highly recommend going back to get those quotes in context. If you enjoyed the series, please share it with a friend or colleague and let us know your thoughts on social media or by sending us an email. The International Coalition of Sites of Conscience is the only global network of historic sites, museums, and memory initiatives dedicated to using past struggles to address social justice challenges today. This podcast was created in partnership with our global initiative for justice, truth, and reconciliation, which seeks to support communities either in or emerging from conflict by elevating the voices of survivors and marginalized groups. For more information, visit sitesofconscience.org and gijtr.org. This podcast was written, edited, and produced by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio.